Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I have four movies to review for you. One of them is brand new. The other three are relatively new. I just didn't get to them right now. But what they have in common is that they are all huge movies. And by huge, I mean they are epic by being at least two hours long each. And I'm going to start with the newest one to come out. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Boy and the Heron. This is an animated film produced by Studio Ghibli and is directed by Ayo Miyazaki. And Ayo Miyazaki has been directing films since the 70s. And this is his first film since 2013's The Wind Rises that he has directed. So it's been a 10-year hiatus for him. And a lot of people assumed that The Wind Rises would be his final film. After all, he is 85 years old. Excuse me, he's 82 years old. So this might be his last film, and very much like a lot of his best films, like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro, The Boy and the Heron is a film that is a lot of fantasy. And also, to Ayo Miyazaki's credit, not only as an animator, but also as a storyteller, you never quite know where The Boy and the Heron is going as a story. And you could see some elements to certain fairy tales like Alice in Wonderland or Snow White in particular with The Boy and the Heron, but the movie is, to its credit, never boring and always fascinating. And The Boy and the Heron is a film about a young boy by the name of Mahito who is yearning for his recently deceased mother who ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead. And in this world, death comes to an end and life finds a new beginning. And according to the synopsis that I'm reading here, this is a semi-autobiographical fantasy from the mind of Ayo Miyazaki. It takes place in the mid-1940s, shortly after World War II. And there are elements of this film, obviously not the fantastical ones, but the other types of elements here that feel uh, semi-autobiographical. So I didn't exactly need IMDb to actually tell me that this was... Um, semi-autobiographical. I could kind of figure that out for myself. That's not to say I'm not appreciative of IMDb for bringing up that fact. What I'm basically saying is that it just really worked here. So the English dub voice of Mahito is Luca Padovan, and there is also some other well-known English-speaking voices in here, including Robert Pattinson, who is the voice of the Grey Heron. And the Grey Heron is kind of probably the most similar to the White Rabbit from Alice in Wonderland in this case, because he's the one, or rather the Grey Heron is the one who kind of lures Mahito into this other world that's inhabited by the living and the dead. And probably the living and the dead theme is not what Alice's Adventures in Wonderland deals with or its sequel through the looking glass, but same kind of deal where the protagonist Mahito goes into another dimension. But the Grey Heron, very much like the White Rabbit, also has a cantankerous personality that's a little bit 
hard for the uh, the protagonist to really get used to at first. But Robert Pattinson usually doesn't do a lot of comedic voices, but he was actually very funny as the Grey Heron. And some of the other English-speaking voices in this movie include Gemma Chan, who does the voice of Natsuko. You also have Christian Bale, who does the voice of Mahito's father, Sochi Maki. And Christian Bale was largely unrecognizable. And Christian Bale himself is Welsh, but he put on an American accent to voice this character, and it works really well. And there's also a granduncle who is in this... Alter world, and apparently he lived in the real world at one point too. And he's voiced in this movie by Mark Hamill. And there's also another character who is a bit of a love interest, whose whose name is Kiriko, who's voiced by Pl- Florence Pugh, and probably one of the most recognizable of these voice actors here is Willem Dafoe, who does the voice of the noble pelican. And this movie is filled with birds, both anthropo- excuse me, yeah, anthropomorphic and non-anthropomorphic. And there are some parakeets in this film. Again, it's very hard to explain, but the parakeet king is voiced here in an interesting casting choice by Dave Bautista. And Dave Bautista has had most of his roles by way of his brawn, or by that I mean he usually plays the the tough guy or the heavy, just based on the fact that he's muscular. And he's never played the voice of a character until now, but he does very well doing the voice of the parakeet king. And there are a lot of supporting characters in this film, and especially the anthropomorphic characters that exist in this world between the living and the dead are very hard to explain. And in the movie, they do seem kind of random at first, but eventually all of them have a role to play. Added to the fact that there are some characters that might look cute, but they might not necessarily be the protagonist's allies. And I thought it was very interesting, not not only interesting, but also fascinating to see some of these characters interact with this world of the dead and also the fact that the world of the dead in this place is not exactly what you would imagine in the Halloween Western sense what the world of the dead would be. So Aya Miyazaki has done it again in terms of subverting a lot of storytelling expectations and tropes that are familiar here to the Western world. And I'm I'm not exactly sure how... Japan puts out their films, particularly their animated films, compared to how Hollywood does it. But Japan, especially when it comes to their anime, kind of has this or seems to have this attitude of anything goes. And that really benefits a lot of the filmmakers who subvert some of the Western tropes of storytelling, particularly in Hollywood movies. And it works really well. The Boy and the Heron is a coming-of-age story at one point. It's also a statement about war, and it also deals with grieving and the power of imagination at that. It is a fascinating film. I don't want Ayo Miyazaki to leave this earth, but if he is to die tomorrow, which hopefully he doesn't, 
I'm just saying that if he does, he'll at least have this film, The Boy and the Heron, to cap his legacy, which is why I'm giving The Boy and the Heron my rating of a knockout. Don't ask me to tell you if it's Ayo Miyazaki's best film. It may not be because Ayo Miyazaki has made a number of other great films up to this point, but it's definitely not his worst. As a matter of fact, I don't think Ayo Miyazaki has ever made a bad film. He just makes these films that are very fascinating and have great uh, animation as well as storytelling that really hooks you. And the fact that it doesn't rely on certain tropes of films that are American and whether they're animated or not really adds to the storytelling aspect and makes this movie all the more intriguing to watch. I had a great time seeing The Boy and the Heron. It was a great film that certainly had a lot of other things in common with other fairy tales, but in addition to that, it also stands out on its own as a really great film. I absolutely loved it, and I can't recommend The Boy and the Heron enough. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary whose title is Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. And that just about tells you exactly what you need to know about this film. I also should tell you that Renaissance was the name of the tour on which Beyonce embarked through 2023. And in addition to Taylor Swift's Eras tours, it was a big massive success and the movie renaissance a film by beyonce first opened or premiered on november 25th 2023 at the samuel golden theater in beverly hills california it opened to theaters nationwide on december 1st 2023 a friday and i did not get to review that film until now and the primary reason i didn't get to review the film is because it has a running time of 168 minutes Two hours, 48 minutes. But when you are watching this film, the time goes by really quickly. Now, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, has a tough act to follow coming after the film adaptation of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour, a film which, by the way, I gave my rating of a knockout. But I did have a few grievances, slight grievances with Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour. I thought that it was a film that showed the concert and only the concert of Taylor Swift. And it was edited in a way that made you believe that you were watching one concert that Taylor Swift put on in one city. And that actually wasn't true. It was a combination of two concerts. But here, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, does not give off that illusion that the Renaissance show that you're seeing is in one city. And you can tell by the way it's edited and also some of the different costumes that Beyonce is wearing. But one thing that I think that actually set 
this Renaissance film ahead of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour is not necessarily the show itself. Beyonce and Taylor Swift both have the repertoire to put on an entire concert, and they also have the theatrics as well as the crew and the special effects and the amazing backup dancers to make what you're seeing not just a concert but a show you'd actually want to see either live or actually in concert and also unlike taylor swift i actually went to see beyonce live in concert at the nissan stadium in nashville which unfortunately i don't think any of the parts of the concert that were in Nashville, made it to this movie, but there were actually a few crowd scenes in Nashville that made it into this film, so I was at least impressed by that, or at least satisfied by that. But I gotta tell you, Beyonce, who is credited here as the not only star of the film, but also the director, the writer, and the producer, puts on an amazing concert film. And it's not just her performing on stage that's amazing. She also has a lot of shots here of her fans, both before, during, and after the concert, which Taylor Swift didn't have quite as much. And she also has some retrospective of her life and career up to this point. Being the director, she does paint over a lot of the ugly parts. One of the ugliest parts of her career was both the annexation, the sudden annexation of two members of Destiny's Child in place of the future Destiny's Child member, the black Michelle Williams, and also the when she was at the height of her fame and success, her parents got divorced because of infidelity on her father's part. But again, there's only so much you can fit into such a movie, and this movie is a celebration of Beyonce's repertoire and legacy, and it is a celebration that, even if I wasn't a Beyonce fan, I would still say is definitely well worth it. But it's not just about her. She also shows a lot of the people who put this show together, especially the special effects and the special lighting that even at one point put one of her venues in a blackout and the the movie shows the crew scrambling to get the electricity back on so Beyonce can continue her show and Beyonce herself even sort of calculates in her head if she has enough time to get into another dress for her next number So it shows that not only is Beyonce putting on a great show, she also is the primary mastermind behind how amazing and how epic this show is. So she's not only the director of this movie, she also called a lot of the shots for this concert. And this concert was definitely well worth it. And I think it probably gives Beyonce a title that No one else in the media has probably given her up to this point, but I'll give it to her based on this movie. I think Beyonce is the hardest working woman in show business, and it could even be argued that she's also the hardest working person in show business. And this movie definitely demonstrates that. And it also showcases some of the backup dancers, not only the, the shots of them dancing actually in the concert, but some of them are also given brief biographies, both about their growing up and also about how they auditioned 
for the Beyonce Renaissance Tour and Beyonce herself giving some insight into why she hired these dancers. And one of the dancers for her show, not the show that I saw in Nashville, but a couple of the big profiles, was Beyonce's daughter, oldest daughter, Blue Ivy Carter. Excuse me. And I was a, a lot of people were saying that it's great that Beyonce could include her daughter in this. I'm not so sure, not based on nepotism, but primarily based on the fact that superstars have previously put their children in the spotlight, whether they wanted to be in the spotlight or not. Like uh, Cassidy Bono, for example, the daughter of Sonny and Cher, who later became the son of Sonny and Cher when she had a sex change and became Chaz Bono. And also Cody Gifford, the son of Frank and Kathy Lee Gifford. I remember them being put in the spotlight, and I thought whether they wanted to be put in the spotlight or not, I had mixed feelings about them being in the spotlight because part of me says, let them be a kid. You know, don't expose them to so many people at so many times because this could wreck a kid. And it seemed to wreck Chastity Bono. I'm not saying that either Sonny Bono or Cher are bad parents, but that was probably a mistake that they made. But at the same time, Blue Ivy Carter, according to this movie, really wanted to be part of her mother's show, and that's commendable. But even more commendable is that Beyonce told her she needs to put in the hard work and do everything that the choreographers told her to do, and Blue Ivy, to her credit, absolutely does that. And there are also some amazing appearances in this film and also in the concert by the likes of Megan the Stallion, Kendrick Lamar, and also Diana Ross, who makes a special appearance when some of Beyonce's backup singers, including one quartet, female quartet that Beyonce put together, uh, sing this amazing rendition of Diana Ross's song Love Hangover that uh, I actually think the backup singers of Beyonce sang better than Diana Ross. But for Diana Ross to at least come out and acknowledge them, uh, that was a big part of this movie. So Renaissance, a film by, by Beyonce, is a film that I loved. I not only think it's a great concert film, it's also a great documentary film. And it is better than Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour. Just because I think that Beyonce did a great job editing her own life into this, as well as the making of the concert, which Taylor Swift didn't do. Now, I'm not saying that Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour is a bad film. I gave that film a knockout, and that is not a rating that I would give back. But Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, also gets my rating of a knockout. Probably an even better, more enthusiastic knockout. And I will be pining for Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, to be nominated for Best Documentary at the Academy Awards. Now, I have no sway over the Academy Awards voters. I'm just an amateur film critic in Nashville, Tennessee, who just gives his opinion. But I think this is an excellent documentary film, and the Academy Awards do have a tendency in the documentary category to snub documentaries that are popular. I hope they don't do that for Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, because it is one of the best concert films that I have ever seen. And kudos to both Beyonce and Taylor Swift for putting out such epic films, especially when not everyone out there could get concert tickets for their respective shows. 
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Godzilla Minus One. And yes, this is the latest Godzilla movie, but unlike some recent movies starring the giant lizard that came about as a result of a nuclear accident, this film, very much like the original Shin Godzilla from 1954, is brought to you by Japan. And it is directed by Tashaki Yamazaki and has an entirely Japanese cast. And Takashi Yamazaki has previously directed a number of movies, including The Fighter Pilot from 2013, Always Sunset on 3rd Street from 2005, and Parasite Part 1 from 2014. And as a director, he has not directed any films that I've seen, or probably what many people in the Western world have seen, but... To have him direct a Godzilla movie is probably a lot of pressure, especially considering how popular Godzilla has remained since his introduction to the Western world in the movie Shin Godzilla, a film that was also made in Japan and resulted in popularity in the Western world a couple of years later. So why is the film called Godzilla Minus One? Well, Godzilla Minus One is a prequel to the original Godzilla, and in the MonsterVerse that previously had Godzilla and King Kong that was made primarily by American filmmakers with primarily American and English actors in it, this Godzilla Minus One is set outside that universe. And it also isn't uh, directly related to any of Toho's previous uh, Godzilla movies. And this standalone film takes place in post-World War II Japan, literally within a couple of years of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the country itself is at its lowest point when a new crisis emerges in the form of a giant monster baptized in the horrific power of the atomic bomb. So... This movie is not only dealing with the fact that, or rather, the people in the movie are not just dealing with the fact that Japan has been devastated from being on the losing end of World War II, but they also have to contend with a giant monster. And in the original Godzilla film, which I have seen, and I actually own it on Blu-ray, and it looks amazing in high definition, by the way, it's almost like a whole new experience. In the original film, the connection between the end of World War II and the emergence of Godzilla, particularly in the Atomic Age, is implied but not exactly spoken. But in this film, the legend of Godzilla is directly tied to the Atomic Age and particularly the atom bomb that was dropped twice on Japan. And... Japan is now having to deal with another monster, and the people who are fighting him also have to deal with their post-traumatic stress disorder from having previously fought in World War II and surviving. So they have that added pressure not only to bring this monster down, but also having to deal with another battle that could potentially destroy all of Japan. And the special effects on Godzilla are amazing. Not to mention the fact that here, Godzilla is not just an antagonist. 
Godzilla is also a villain. And to see the Japanese military and the other people who are trying to fight Godzilla and their bullets and their bombs not doing anything to destroy the monster, in fact, probably making the monster stronger, not only makes for a great movie, but it also is very frustrating to watch. And there is one professor here who has a unique way to destroy the monster, and it does, I think, in the grand scheme of things, not destroy Godzilla permanently, but I'm not going to exactly give away what that way of destroying the monster is, but it's not with bullets, and it's not with bombs, and it's also not with nuclear activity. And to see Godzilla destroy these cities is horrific. The the movie does not pull any punches when it comes to the devastation that Godzilla creates. Although in some other later movies, including one in particular that was made in America, Godzilla is more of an antagonist than a straight-up villain because there are some other nuclear creatures that it, that are destroying Japan or whatever country or city they're in, and Godzilla just happens to be in the same universe. And Godzilla takes on these other creatures not to save the people of Japan or whatever country he's inhabiting, but or she is inhabiting because sometimes Godzilla is a female. And in this film, Godzilla is a gender. <laughs> In other words, neither male nor female, or at least that's not specified. But the world is just only big enough for, isn't big enough for two creatures. So Godzilla might be saving people, but Godzilla generally does not do that on purpose. But Godzilla Minus One is indeed an excellent prequel and has a very tough act to follow when it comes to other incantations of Godzilla. But this one, I think, has the spirit of the original Godzilla film from 1954 because, yes, Godzilla is a major character in this film, but also the humans in this film, particularly the character of Kochi uh, Shikashima, who's played by Rinosuke Ma, uh, Kamiki, and forgive me for mispronouncing this, is a fully fleshed character who not only has to deal with bringing down Godzilla or try to contribute to that, but he's also doing that after he fought diligently in World War II and survived. So not only is his it not only is his survival on the line, but the survival of Japan, as well as maybe even the rest of the world, because who knows how much property and lives Godzilla could destroy with just one stomp of his foot or her foot or whatever gender Godzilla is. So Godzilla Minus One is another excellent film that uh, premiered in the United States on December 1st, 2023 in theaters everywhere. It's not as long as the other two films that I reviewed on the show, but it is definitely a film worth watching. And it gets my rating of a knockout because it is a film that does not pull punches when it comes to the special effects, but it also doesn't skimp on the character development and the way that the people in this film come up with a way to destroy Godzilla is very unique and probably hasn't been done in any other movie 
previously. Now, granted, I have not seen every Godzilla film. I've seen a lot of the major ones. I've seen the 1998 version, which just flat out sucked and is called by Godzilla fans, Gino, G-I-N-O, Godzilla in name only, and for very good reason. But what I'm saying is that the way that they destroy Godzilla in this film, or rather, or maybe even inhibit Godzilla, depending on your view of it, is very unique and it makes for an amazing climax, which is probably more memorable than a lot of the recent Godzilla films in the MonsterVerse. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Napoleon, and this is a film to which I have been relatively late to join. Uh, It came out in the United States and Great Britain on November 22nd, 2023, and it premiered at the Salle Playel in Paris, France, my My apologies for mispronouncing the name of that theater. I don't speak French, but anyway, it premiered. Yeah, it's actually pretty um, noteworthy that it premiered in France, but there's been a little bit of French backlash of this movie because it's a film that's made by an American director and the star of the movie is American and does nothing to hide his American accent. I can totally understand why people have a problem with uh, Joaquin Phoenix playing Napoleon here. And I don't exactly know if this is Joaquin Phoenix's best role ever, but even though he doesn't attempt a French accent, I think that might actually be a little distracting. But Joaquin Phoenix still does a good job playing Napoleon, both as a military commander and also in his own personal life, particularly with his wife, Josephine, who's played in this movie by British actress and Academy Award nominated actress, Vanessa Kirby. Now, Joaquin Phoenix is really good as Napoleon de Bonaparte, but Vanessa Kirby is amazing as Josephine Bonaparte. There are scenes where Napoleon and Josephine are trying to conceive a child so that somebody will succeed Napoleon after he steps down as the emperor of France. But Josephine runs into a problem when she can't conceive a child. So Napoleon has a choice to make. He either divorces the woman he loves for the good of France, or he doesn't have an heir. So it, it's one of probably this film's best conflicts. Not only is that part of the film 
the root of the movie. It also shows how effective Napoleon Bonaparte was as a leader. And I was going to tell you the number of other films that had previously been made about Napoleon before this film, but the truth is Napoleon Bonaparte has been in, and this is true, almost 180 films to date, including this film directed by Ridley Scott. And there have been films about him that have been made in the United States, which this one has, but also France, no surprise there, Italy, Germany, and Russia have all made films either about Napoleon or with Napoleon being a major character in the film. As a matter of fact, there was one time after Stanley Kubrick made 2001 A Space Odyssey where he was planning to make a film about Napoleon. And he wrote a screenplay for the Napoleon film, which fortunately never went away. He never burned it. But after there was a film that came out in 1970 called Waterloo, which was a critical and commercial failure, Stanley Kubrick actually shelved his Napoleonic film. And Ridley Scott actually read the screenplay to Stanley Kubrick's movie, but decided not to make Stanley Kubrick's film into a movie. Instead, the story and screenplay writer for this film was David Scarpa. And there are some historians and there are some experts on Napoleon Bonaparte who would probably see this film and note each and every historical inaccuracy. The primary historical inaccuracy that this film took, which was probably more artistic liberty, was at the very beginning of the film, it depicted the beheading of Marie Antoinette and showed that Napoleon Bonaparte was there. In other words, Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon Bonaparte witnessed Marie Antoinette's execution. But in reality, Napoleon Bonaparte was not there. But I think that you could pick this movie apart for its historical inaccuracies. I don't think it was made exactly to be a historically accurate film, or at least the film that's been released into theaters right now with a running time of two hours, 38 minutes might not be the most accurate, but it still is compelling to watch. And as a matter of fact, this film, Napoleon will be released later on Apple TV plus the exact date when it's going to be released is yet to be determined, but Ridley Scott is actually going to release this film in parts for Apple TV+, and the parts of the film are going to be a total combined running time of four hours. I think this is a very smart move. Ridley Scott is not the first director to make this kind of move with a movie. As a matter of fact, when Quentin Tarantino made The Hateful Eight, he released it into theaters in 70mm, at a relatively uh, long running time, about the same as this film, Napoleon. I think it might have even been a little bit longer at three hours. And it was so long that what Quentin Tarantino actually put an intermission in, in between the film, which a lot of other filmmakers should be doing by now. In the up, up until the 1970s, an intermission was required for films of that length. Now, I think it should be kind of mandatory, or rather, I, I don't necessarily think it should be mandatory because, you know, it's, it's a matter of free speech, but I think it's a good idea for directors to do that. But now that we have streaming and also the fact that Quentin Tarantino released a longer cut of The Hateful Eight on Netflix and released it in parts as a serial was a really good move. I don't know if, if Ridley Scott used Quentin Tarantino as an example specifically, but... 
I am still interested to, uh, to see Napoleon again on Apple TV Plus in its four-hour cut. I probably wouldn't watch the film in one sitting, but I would watch the film as long as I can and probably still be mesmerized by it, which is why I give Napoleon my rating of a knockout. I do think that that Joaquin Phoenix does the role of Napoleon very well. I'm glad he didn't use a French accent in this case because I don't think Joaquin Phoenix can do accents, and I think he runs the risk of probably being ridiculed in all corners of the internet as well as maybe on SNL, and that might hinder Joaquin Phoenix's credibility as an actor. But his scenes that he has here with Vanessa Kirby are amazing. And Vanessa Kirby is definitely the actress here who stands out the most. But I also loved, in addition to the acting in this film, I loved the cinematography, particularly of the war scenes. I loved the set design. I loved the costumes. And I would imagine that if Napoleon does not get a lot of nominations in the acting categories, he'll probably get a lot more nominations, probably in the categories that involve a lot more science like cinematography, like costume design, and the list goes on. But Napoleon is a film that might disappoint some people who are Napoleon experts or those who are history buffs. It didn't disappoint me primarily because it was well acted, it was well filmed, and it says a lot that Ridley Scott, who is 85 years old, can still direct epics very well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of December 10th through December 15th, 2023. And, of course, the holidays are coming up, which means that there are a lot of big movies that are coming out, but not a lot of them are Christmas-themed, but there are actually a couple. And it looks like some of these films are either going to be released on streaming and or in theaters for presumably one night only by way of companies like Fathom Events, for example. And there's one film that's coming out on December 11th, 2023, and it's a film that's called A Small Town Christmas, which is just in time for the holidays. This seems like one of those films that will be in theaters uh, for just uh, a little while. It's a movie that stars a woman by the name of Jen Blanton, who also wrote the screenplay. And in this film, there is a woman whose name is Summer O'Neill, who is an attorney that handles accident cases. She hasn't seen her family for Christmas in years. However, this Christmas, her grandmother is ill. Summer will face her fears and go home to her small town for Christmas. The website that I'm getting this information off of is not telling me a lot of information about this film, and it sounds a little less cliche than some of the other romantic comedy Christmas films that that have come out 
over the last couple of decades. But it's a film that uh, I might see, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a, on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters and maybe even on streaming on December 12th, 2023, is a film that is actually going to be in theaters on from December 12th through December 17th, and it is called Christmas with the Chosen, Holy Night. And this is about a young mother who is labeled impure, a shepherd boy who is considered unclean, and a never-before-seen performance by Andrea Bocelli that highlights seven musical performances and two beautiful new monologues. And if you haven't figured it out already, the young mother who is labeled impure is probably the Virgin Mary, and the shepherd boy might be Joseph, but Joseph was a carpenter, not a shepherd. So I'm not sure what the deal with that shepherd boy is, but Andrea and Matteo Bocelli, who I believe is Andrea Bocelli's son, will be in this film. So it looks like it's a musical film. And all the information that the website I'm looking at is giving me is that this film is music, which could mean that it's a concert film. And it will be released by Fathom Events. I don't know if I'm going to be seeing this film. Chances are it's a film for opera fans as well as people who really, really love Christmas. And I really, really love Christmas too. But I wouldn't exactly say that I'd go out of my way to see this film. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And it may be next week's show as it will be my last show before Christmas of the year of our Lord 2023. But it is December 15th that a number of big films are subject to being released in theaters. And one of the biggest films that's going to be released in theaters is Wonka. Wonka is a prequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and it gets a lot of its stylistic inspiration from the 1971 film, which, by the way, Roald Dahl hated that film so much. I don't think he liked any of his cinematic adaptations of any of his works, but he most especially didn't like the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But in this film, Willy Wonka is played by Timothy Chalamet, which is probably the first film where Timothy Chalamet has not played somebody's love interest. So, good for Timothy Chalamet. Actually, that's not true. Timothy Chalamet was also in another film where he played the son of Steve Carell, where he played a drug addict, and he was excellent in that film. But that performance was unfortunately overlooked. But either way, Timothy Chalamet is a legitimate movie star, and his appeal can't be denied. But anyway, with dreams of opening a shop in a city renowned for its chocolate, a young and poor Willy Wonka discovers that the industry is run by a cartel of greedy chocolatiers. So this is indeed a prequel to uh, Willy Wonka, or rather Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And besides Timothy Chalamet, one of the Oompa Loompas I know is played by Hugh Grant. And I have very mixed feelings about Hugh Grant playing a little person, particularly because there are other actors of that stature who could have been in this movie instead rather than taking a normal size actor and using CGI to shrink him. But I'll see how this movie is anyway. It definitely looks like a lot of imagination has been put into this film. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show, probably next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters 
on December 15th, 2023, is a movie that's called Control. And the only reason that I think that this film might not be released in a theater near you is because it stars Kevin Spacey. Yeah. And Kevin Spacey was canceled so badly six years ago, and rightly so, I might add, that he was actually taken out of the Ridley Scott film The Richest Man in the World, and he was replaced by Christopher Plummer. And at first, I thought that replacing Kevin Spacey might have been a little bit of a stretch, but Christopher Plummer did an amazing job in the movie All the Money in the World that I kind of forgot that Kevin Spacey was originally in it. But in this film, Control, British Home Secretary Stella Simmons, who is played by Lauren Metcalf, drives home one night while engaging in an affair with the Prime Minister. And a mysterious man, who is presumably Kevin Spacey, remotely hijacks her self-driving car, forcing her on a rampage through London. That is uh, interesting. It sounds like a very intriguing film. And Kevin Spacey actually is the voice of this character. Presumably, he does not appear in the movie as himself, but then again, I don't exactly know. And it might be one of those things where he appears at the very end as himself. Maybe he doesn't, but putting Kevin Spacey as the starring role in a movie is risky considering that he will probably spend the rest of his life being canceled for what he did. And, you know, for very good reason. But Control is a movie I can't guarantee that I'm going to see. If I do see it, I will A, not condone what Kevin Spacey did to get canceled, and B, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on December 15th, 2023, is a film that's called Concrete Utopia, which is a foreign film which is directed by Tay Huai Yom. My, my apologies if I got that name wrong. It is presumably a Korean director, although my resources aren't telling me what country this is from. But judging from the way the actors' names are written, it's probably Korean. But it's a movie about a massive earthquake and the survivors who struggle for a new life in Seoul, the capital of South Korea. The movie stars Park Si Joon, Lee Byung-hun, and Park Bo-young, amongst other people. And don't tell me to find any actors who I recognize here. I don't. At least I don't recognize them by name. But Concrete Utopia sounds like a wicked film, and it certainly packs a punch with its subject matter. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final movie that is subject to be released in theaters on December 15th is a movie that's called Rainbows. And this movie is a family film, and it is a stirring story, according to the synopsis that I'm reading, that captures the glory of determination when a physically challenged young girl brings an abused, homeless female jockey and an abandoned horse together for the ride of a lifetime and so much more. The movie is directed and written by Hal Porcelain, and the stars of the movie include Larry Burkhead, Michael Gibb, Barry J. Minoff, and J.J. Crown. My guess is this is one of these low-budget films that might not be appearing in multiplexes near you. I'll look out for it, but I don't know. It's a film that I might see. I'm not going to guarantee that I'll see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. 
those are all the films that are going to be released in theaters. There are undoubtedly going to be some other films that are going to be released on streaming. And again, there are so many films that I've seen in theaters up to this point, and I haven't covered all of them, and it's unlikely that I will for next week's show because I try to do a minimum three movies and a maximum five movies. And the movies that I review for you this week were so long that they ultimately took up the time that I have to do this show. So I only got to review four, but there are a number of films that are coming out on streaming for the week of December 10th through December 15th, 2023. There's one documentary that's coming out on Tuesday, December 12th. That's called Kevin Hart and Chris Rock headliners only. Netflix is calling it a documentary. I don't exactly know if it's a stand-up special, but if it is, I'm probably not going to review it for you because I've largely avoided stand-up specials unless they're movies that are released in the theaters because with stand-up specials, the stand-up comedian who is being showcased is either funny or they're not, and that's it. So there's really not a lot to say. There are only so many clever camera angles you can have without seeming too uh, clever for these stand-up comedy movies. But if it's one of those films that I do see, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released on Netflix on Wednesday, December uh, December 13th, is a film that is not a Netflix original, and it's called Holidays in the Vineyard. Presumably... The Vineyard is probably Martha's Vineyard. It is a 2023 movie, so it's relatively new. Its original title was A Wine Country Christmas, which they probably changed because it sounds exactly the same as maybe a Hallmark film would. But this movie follows a widow who struggles keeping her local vineyard and raising two young boys. She may be in store for a Christmas miracle when she falls for a big city playboy who is set to get intel on a prospective vineyard for sale. So this movie might seem like a typical Hallmark film, and it is. The only difference is it's on Netflix, not Hallmark. But its world premiere, according to the synopsis here, is going to be on Netflix on December 13th, 2023. It's a film that I might see, but... Chances are I'm probably going to skip this one because it sounds like a lot of Hallmark-like Christmas films. But if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.